My name is Paul Buckley, one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're new with us, we're so glad you're here. Let us know how we can help you wherever you might be in your spiritual journey. Um, One of the most important parts of coming together to worship, there are certainly many elements God calls us to use as we worship Him corporately together, but one of the more important elements is being before His Word. And so we are going through the book of Romans as a church. We'll be in chapter 5 today. So you can open up to Romans 5, and if you don't have a Bible in your hands, I uh, would love to get you a Bible or a journal, Romans journal, for you to use. We will project the verses as well, um, but just so you can have that in front of you. Um, so how are you guys doing with this New England winter and the cold weather and uh, the length of the winter? Um, I... I I, I know I'm biased, but I have seen a good, most of the country and a good part of the world, and I think New England is one of the best places in the world to live. Um, I, I love New England, but one of the challenges of New England is the winter, right? And if, the, if you can get through the winter, the rest is all wonderful, but it gets hard. It's cold. It's dark. Uh, for some of us, uh, raise your hand, I guess. Do you get up in the morning before the sun, and then you go home? after the sun in the winter, right? So I used to do that, um, and I had uh, a job that didn't have an outdoor window. So uh, you don't, you're basically, you're living in darkness for like two months, uh, and that's difficult. Uh, It's difficult to endure the New England winters, but there are some things that help. They help a great deal. There's a number of of approaches that can help get you through it. One is to remember um, that it's not all that long. It doesn't last forever. Though it feels like forever when you're in it, it doesn't last forever. And especially when you start hitting February and you start feeling the sun and you realize, wow, the sun actually has some warmth to it. Uh, and, and then when the sun starts staying up uh, longer, so you get home and you see the sun and it's up in the morning uh, as well, that helps. Uh, it helps when you realize that what's coming is spring and then summer and summer and fall in the most beautiful place in the world just about to enjoy and it also helps if you can kind of experience some summer-like things in the midst of it. So for some of us, this is a strategy. Go down to Florida for a little bit, have a taste of summer, uh, and then come back. It helps get you through this. Well, now, why do I bring this up? Well, I hope it's helpful for you in some way, but it's not just some practical tips for living in New England. It's actually very analogous to our passage today in Romans chapter 5. We live in a world that can feel dark and cold, and we can struggle. And there are some powerful truths and powerful perspectives that that come in from Scripture that are truths that that help us, that sustain us, that strengthen us. And it's around the biblical idea of hope. Biblical hope being something more than wishful thinking, but an expectation of a certain uh, blessed future. And so the title of the message today is Boasting in Hope. We'll look at Romans 5, 1 through 11. But let's pray and ask the Lord to help us because just as we can struggle Uh, With New England winters, we can struggle with life, and the Lord wants to come in and give us things that are powerful enough to get us through, and more than that, to fill us with joy and strength and success in Him. So let's pray and ask Him to work. Lord, we thank You. We thank You for who You are and what You've done. We thank You for Your Word, Your living Word, that comes to us and and, and, uh, fills our mind with truth, but also Lord, uh, imparts us with your life. 
And we need your life. We need your perspective today. So I pray, Lord, would you help me to well uh, do a good job of well explaining your truth and accurately portraying it and proclaiming it? And would you give us power to hear and to understand, to believe and live in it, Lord? We thank you for who you are and what you've done and that you're here with us to help. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who, he has, been, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. God's word from Romans chapter 5, 1 through 11. And this passage follows on from what we've been talking about and learning about this idea of righteousness through faith alone, in Christ alone, by his sacrifice on our behalf, his sacrifice where he gave himself, shed his blood, and died to atone for our sins, to satisfy God's holy justice. Uh, we saw that word propitiation, which is a word that captures this idea of a sacrifice offered to put away wrath. In God's case, it's a holy, just wrath. And we learned last week that this plan to justify us through faith as a gift has been God's plan all along. There's no other plan. It's been his plan all along. It's not a new thing. And this wonderful good news is the only way for reconciliation with God. Uh, with our good and holy God. And this is all apart from works. Through faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. Now works have their place, but justification is apart from works. So we're learning about that, and we've been digging in, and, and now Paul is starting to lead us into the implications of this, some other implications of living this life where we are already justified. And so in uh, these 11 verses, we will learn that those justified through faith, are propelled by an amazing hope. Those justified by faith are propelled by an amazing hope. It's a hope that is growing through trials, a hope gripped by love, a hope grounded in Christ, and a hope glorying in God. And, 
and uh, I'll hit on those as we go along. So it's an amazing hope. It's, it is a hope full of these four different components. So first, it's a hope growing through trials. We see in verses 1 through 4 this idea. He starts out, of course, though, with this important precondition. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, and so this is the precondition to all that's going to happen, all that, he's, all that has happened, all that he wants to say. We have been justified by faith. This important experience, this important reality is the precondition for what falls. And notice that it's not a precondition that says something else like, therefore, since you have fully obeyed God, whatever. Therefore, since you have maintained a blameless life, therefore whatever. Therefore, since you've had a deeper experience, you, you got that, that special blessing from God, you have these other things. It doesn't say any of that. As important as those things might be in their proper place, it doesn't say that. The precondition that here is, since you have been justified by faith, through simple faith, having, apart from works, not relying on your works, but through simple faith, receiving this sacrifice given to you, for your salvation. Turning away from alternatives of course. It, it, faith is a turning away from other things. And putting your trust in Christ. And so that's the precondition. To all these other things. Having been justified how? By faith. By faith. And I think we've seen in Romans. Just how clear and how important this truth is. Everything else flows from this. There, there is no other precondition before this other than what Christ has done and receiving that by faith. And we're following the footsteps of Abraham as we do that. As we look not to ourselves, not to our inability, not to the deadness of our own lives, not to the deadness of our bodies, not to the deadness of our sinful condition, but to God who breathes life into the dead who calls into existence things that are not. We put our hope in him. And so the, this, uh, the audacious claim that we're justified by faith is not based on us, but based on God and what, who he is, what he's done, and his plan. There's no other plan. He says, receive this gift freely given. And that is the basis for everything else. Apart from works. That is amazingly good news. It's incredibly good news for all of us. And, and we learned about this last week because nothing else will work. No other plan will work. There'll be no justification, no being truly righteous before God any other way. We all fall short. We all run into very quickly, if we're honest with ourselves, our failure, our depravity, our indwelling sin. Even as believers who have now received the Holy Spirit and do have new life, we still are fallen in a fallen condition. We still have sin indwelling, and so we're always going to be frustrated in this. And so, unbeliever, believer, all of us must look to Christ alone. Justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone. This is really good news. And that alone would be sufficient to celebrate forever. But Paul is now going to lead us into these other important implications. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. We have peace with God. We have the cessation of enmity and strife between us and God. We have the settlement of God's just indictment of our lack of love and goodness 
It's been settled. It's been taken care of. We have the resolution of this conflict. We have full reconciliation with God. We have full reception into the family. We are counted as sons and daughters in the family. We have an everlasting union with our triune God. We have the ultimate answer to the ultimate problem of the universe. We have peace with God. We have harmony with God. Unity, love, safety, blessing. Every spiritual blessing we have through Christ in God. We have peace with God. There's no strife. There's no enmity. There's no more danger. There's no more curse. Just curse hanging over us. We have all these things have been removed. We are at peace with God. We have peace with God. There is nothing like this peace. There's no more important peace. There's no more important problem than our lack of peace apart from justification through faith. That's our greatest problem by far. All other problems are actually derived from that and much lesser. That's our ultimate problem that on our own before a holy God we are justly condemned. And he must be at enmity with us in that state. And yet it's been his plan all along to reconcile sinners through Christ crucified and risen. And haven't been justified by faith. We have peace with God. And the world can rage around us. And yet we can be calm. Our bodies can grow old and decay. And yet we can face decline and death with courage. And even joy for what lies ahead. Others can misunderstand us. Afflict us. Betray us, and yet we can know an inner peace, a real peace, the most significant peace there is, and it will never be undone. We have peace with God. And nothing else really matters if we have that. I was watching, uh, Peg and I watched The Crown, the, the series. Um, and by the way, whenever I share an example, it's not necessarily an endorsement. There's some, I think, historical inaccuracies with the crown, but I won't get into that. So, nevertheless, there's some really interesting things in the crown series. So, it's about Queen Elizabeth. And, um, and I remember watching uh, one of the episodes, and it featured Edward, Prince Edward, the youngest um, of, of the children. And he was talking about how he was teased at school and bullied a little bit. Uh, he went to a boarding school. And he took it pretty well. And I thought, well, yeah... Of course you're going to take it well. I think any of us would take it well if the Queen of England was our mother. I mean, we have the, the most powerful, most influential, most famous, maybe one of the most richest people in the whole country for our mother. You can tease me all you want. The Queen's my mother. And I think for us, the world can throw whatever it can at us. It can do whatever it wants to us. We call the Almighty Dad. We have peace with God. And that peace makes all the difference. And Paul doesn't stop there though. He continues. Verse 2, through whom we have also obtained access by faith 
into this grace in which we stand. Through Christ, through this justification, through this relationship we have with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we stand on grace. We stand on grace. We stand on the gracious offer and guarantee and character of God himself, who we know now, having believed that he has loved us from before time began, and that he has determined to relate to us through grace. And we stand on that grace. We stand in that place of safety. That Christ has lived the righteous life that we ought to have lived and fulfilled all righteousness for us. That Christ has been crucified and died on the cross to pay for our sins. And now through Jesus we are counted righteous. We are received as if we had lived that life. And as if we had never sinned, we are treated as sons and daughters. We stand in grace. And now he's for us in every way. In every aspect of our lives, he is for us. He uses all things for our good. We're going to get there shortly. We stand in grace. We stand in this safe place. The only safe place. In his grace. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground will eventually erode from underneath you. No matter how long it has previously stood, it will fall. Sooner or later, the volcano will explode and the tsunami will come rushing in and that ground you thought was safe that wasn't the grace of God will be torn out from under you and you will be overwhelmed. That's the reality. There's no other place to stand. And yet God in his graciousness offers this place to any and all who would receive it. We stand in grace in this safe place this day and the next day and the day after that. And on the final day, we stand on that place of grace, the only safe place. And it says, in that place, standing on that place, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in that safe place and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That word rejoice actually uh, can also be translated we boast. And that's the title of the message, boasting in hope. It's the same word that was used earlier in chapter 4 when it said if Abraham could, get, could be righteous by works, he had something to boast about. Remember we saw that? And then earlier on in chapter 3, where is the boasting if, if salvation is righteousness is through faith? There's none. It's removed. The same word. And it's this idea of exalting. Rejoicing in something. Exalting. Boasting in something. And so now Paul is turning that around and saying now because we are those who stand in grace. We boast indeed. We boast in what? In the hope of the glory of God. We exalt. We rejoice. in not only where we stand right now. Not only what has happened already as we are already justified. But what's coming. What is sure to come, the glory of God that awaits us, the hope of the glory of God, the final putting off of all evil and decay, all curse and sin, all sadness and remorse, and the putting on of eternal glorious bodies and a renewed creation where we will walk in perfect 
mind-blowing union with our triune God forever and ever. Bliss, holy pleasure, and glory unending. And it's guaranteed by the fact that Christ has already entered into that. He's already been raised from the dead. He has a glorified body. He is reigning. And that's a guarantee of what's to come for each and every one of us. We all will receive glorified bodies, resurrected bodies. We all will live in a, essentially a resurrected universe. That's the promise. As sure as the Son has been raised from the dead. That's the promise that we have. And so we stand in this place of grace, this safe place to stand, exulting in what's coming. Rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. Boasting in what lies ahead and is sure for us. In the meantime, as we boast in the hope of the glory of God, Paul says something really provocative, maybe hard to understand, really different than what you hear perhaps elsewhere. Verse 3, not only that, not only that, not only all this stuff, that's amazing, but listen to this, but we boast in our sufferings. That's a different idea. That's a different perspective. But we boast in our sufferings, we rejoice in our sufferings, same word, we boast in our sufferings. So now, in this new relationship we have with God, through faith, we're justified. We are at peace with God. We stand in the safe place. We're looking forward to what's to come, the hope of the glory of God. And right now, as we go through this life that has difficulties, we actually boast in those sufferings. Why? Why would we do that? How does that make any sense? Why would we boast in, in the hardships that we go through? Well... Being in the Lord, all these things are changed. The impact of sufferings is changed. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering knowing. We know something about our suffering. That we have a different perspective. We've been informed knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope is not just a fantasy. It's reliable. It will not put us to shame. We've already experienced many of these things. And, and so let's just take a minute to trace out that and, and how that works. So we boast in our sufferings because sufferings have an impact on a genuine believer. Uh, someone who has encountered the Lord, who's been justified by faith, there's something that's gone on in you. Whether you know it or not, you probably sense it once you have that experience of putting your trust in Jesus. There's new life in you. Actually, God himself now dwells in you and there's this ability to believe. That's a miracle in itself and a, and a work of grace in itself. And so when you encounter difficulty, things go differently than they used to go. Now, it doesn't mean you don't struggle. It doesn't mean sometimes you, 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 you know, don't get it wrong and so forth. You get it wrong. You, you, you still can go up and down, but ultimately there's something different going on. As you face difficulty, the result will be not giving up, I quit. No more following Jesus. But for the one who's justified by faith who is in Christ, when you encounter difficulty, you will actually keep on keeping on. It doesn't mean that you do it in, in you know, 
happy clappy way. It might be really hard at times. You might struggle. You might have some mornings where you feel like death warmed over and so forth. But there will be something that goes on. The miracle of endurance. Don't understate. Don't underestimate the importance of simple endurance. Hanging on as he hangs on to you. It's a glorious miracle. And if it weren't for the life of Christ in us, we wouldn't do it. And so suffering produces endurance. And endurance does something in us. It produces character. Proven character. It proves that there's something here that's substantially different. That, that somebody would go through difficulties. And whatever those difficulties might be, they can be all sorts of things. They can be the natural difficulties we face in a fallen world. Sickness, disease, aging. It can be persecution and mistreatment by others. It can be all sorts of things. But for the person who stands in the place of grace, they endure and they are able to overcome those things as difficult as they might be. There's a character. There's a, a perspective. There's a, there's a sense of who you are that's greater than the adverse circumstance. That's character. Proven character. Where apart from God's work, you might react entirely differently. You might just give up. You might just wander off into some sort of wild living trying to make yourself feel better. Whatever it might be, there's a thousand different options, of course, that one might choose uh, to deal with suffering. But for the believer, there's endurance and there's character. The character of Christ starts to come up because the, the things get addressed and your priorities start to line up. They're not perfect, but you know at the, at the bottom of it all that I need Jesus. I can't deal with this. And then second, I have Jesus. I can deal with this. That's character. That's the character of Christ. And that's what Christ himself, though he was perfect, had to learn obedience through his suffering. He had to go through that and say, not my will, but yours be done. I look forward to the joy that's set before me, the joy of my relationship with my heavenly father and the people of God. Priorities get lined up. That's, that's part of this character. It produces proven character. And we talked uh, a while ago about this idea, right? That, that the refinement of sufferings both prove and improve the gold that's there. And so suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. Because you realize this is real. He's been helping me, and I feel it, and I see it, and I know he's doing something in me that's bigger than my life, and bigger than these trials, and bigger than my weakness. He's at work. It produces hope that he is indeed who he is, and he will indeed do what he has said. And hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't let us down. It won't ever let us down because it's a genuine hope. It's real hope. It's a hope based on something sure. It won't let us down in our life. It won't let us down on the judgment day because it's pointing to something that is real. And we'll get into the rest of that section there as well. But to understand this is how it works, how the process works, that we actually rejoice in our sufferings. You rejoice in this re reality of what you have. Suffering refines your understanding and experience of that reality that you have Jesus, you have God, and he gives you what you need. 
He produces in you something good. He makes you more like Jesus. And so, for the believer, we can rejoice in our sufferings. That's wild. That's so different. And yet, what a powerful message that the world needs to hear because they don't have an answer for adversity and suffering other than to run and hide or try to construct a world uh, without that, which won't, won't happen short of Christ. Our hope is an amazing hope. It's a hope that grows through trials. Second point, and just in case you're worried, this will be shorter. Um, a hope gripped by love. Verse 5, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul points out that this hope is reliable because the love of God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We've experienced the love of God already. Our hope is not a fantasy. It's based on reality and truth. It's based in reality and experience. Christianity is an experiential religion, an experiential truth. It's not just a concept. It's an encounter. It's not just theology. It's God himself interacting with us as he pours out his love into our hearts. It's amazing. He pours out his love. It uses the word pour. It doesn't say drip. It doesn't say waft. He pours out his love into our hearts. This is the idea of generous giving of his love into our hearts. Now his love is infinite. You'll never have the full measure of it because it's beyond measure. But it's the word pour indicating that it's a generous giving, a generous pouring into our, our lives, not simply a drop. It's a love that, that grants us the sense that we belong to him. He says later on in chapter 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, sons and daughters, inclusive word, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He's our Abba. He loves us. He loves us with the everlasting love. He interacts with us and he wants to pour into us more and more again and again and again. And we are transformed as we are experiencing this love. We are to be shaped and compelled and empowered and sanctified by this great love. This is the, the key, the power of experiencing his love to a holy life, to a Christ-like life, to a, a life that pleases the Father. He wants you to ask for more. To say, more, please. More of your love in my heart. More of your power, Holy Spirit, in my life. To grasp the glory of God in his love. This love strengthens our hope. It confirms it. And so ask the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, for the love of God. Now he's going to go on and connect this with other aspects where we know the love of God. Because we see it in what Christ has done for us. He says in verse 6, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That his love is confirmed by 
the work of Christ for us while we were enemies. His love compelled him to die for you when you were his enemy. That's the sort of love he has for you. He pursued you when you were an enemy, when there was nothing meritorious in you to earn his love. He has loved you while you were still a sinner. He bridged the gap between his perfect, infinite holiness and your rebellion with his love. His love is bigger, much bigger than your sin and your failures and your weakness. His love has been poured out into our hearts. And it's to be poured out again and again. Our hope is a hope shaped by the love of God, by the experience of the love of God, and the surety of the love of God demonstrated in the work of Christ on the cross. And it's to propel, propel us in our lives, to fuel us, to fill us. And I love watching people encounter the amazing love of God, especially for the first time. I remember one man I met who had spent his life as a, a Boston cop. And as such, he had a lot of bitterness and brokenness. He had seen a lot of bad stuff. Maybe done a lot of bad stuff in some way as well. He was as hard-hearted as could be. But he had an encounter with God. He had an encounter with the good news that God himself in the flesh, as Jesus died on the cross for his sins, loved him and died for him. And he received that truth and he allowed people to pray for him. And he talked about this, what happened. As he was prayed for in that moment, the love of God was poured into his heart. And all that bitterness, all those years of all the things that had happened came out and were healed and forgiven. And he cried, a boss, this hardened Boston cop cried like a baby for like an hour as he encountered the love of God. That is what God does. He pours out his love into our hearts. And he wants us to put our confidence in this great love. He wants us to ask for more. He wants us to rely on his love. He wants us to celebrate this love. He wants us to boast and rejoice in this love. He wants us to cease striving in our own efforts and rest in his immense and amazing and faithful and eternal love. And everything else flows from that. Certainly, yes, there's things for you to do, but don't get the cart before the horse. Live in this reality of his great love for you. We have a hope gripped, an amazing hope gripped by the love of God. Next, a hope grounded in Christ. This is good news. This relates to what I was just saying, but, but there's an aspect here I want to get at that I haven't talked about yet. It says, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. We have a hope grounded in Christ. It's grounded in the reality that when we were his enemies, Christ died for us. And that him loving us that much and working on doing the work of God in that way for us while we were enemies led to our justification. If that's the case, much more now that we 
are reconciled. We are part of the family. Will he make sure he finishes the work in our lives so that on the day, the final day of God's wrath, where he judges all according to his just and good standard, we will be forgiven and safe because Christ has died for us. Christ has been raised to life and Christ is now interceding for us and he's with us. And so if when we were enemies he would die for us, then certainly as his sons and as his brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters of, of the Father, he will see it to the end. He will, by his life in us, by his reign, by his resurrected life, and the promise and reality of that resurrected life, he will see us to the end. That's what Paul is saying here. So we have a confidence in Jesus. That he will bring us to the final destination. That his life will be at work in us to keep us. And again, if we're honest with ourselves, there should be moments. I know for me, there's lots of moments like, I can't do this. I know where I could go with this. I don't feel like I belong to Jesus today. I see more of a sinner than a saint today. That's the reality if we're honest with ourselves. And, and so how do we answer that? We answer it with what God says. If he died for you when you were his enemy, now that you've been reconciled, how much more will he make sure that he gets you to that point of the final day and the final inheritance by his life in you? His life of intercession and his reign as the resurrected one. That is really good news. That is really good news. That is amazingly good news. And we need it. We are sheep. Now, maybe you aren't. I'll speak for myself. I'm a sheep. And sheep, uh, sheep is the metaphor used for us in Scripture for good reason. Sheep are dependent animals. It's really interesting. I did a little study on sheep. Because of the the domestication of sheep and so forth, they've actually entered into the state where they are like immature animals normally in, in the wild animals, the immature dependent animals. The adults are like that as sheep. They act like that. And so God says, well, here's a great metaphor. You're sheep. You're like childlike animals that need constant direction and care. And if left to themselves, will wander off into really stupid things. Well, I say, I'm applying it to myself. Sorry. I'm this. Maybe you are too. We are sheep. I am sheep. Sorry, I keep on saying you're sheep. You're, okay, if you, everyone's agreed, we'll just stay on the we. we. We are fickle. We doubt. We go astray. We are enamored by unhelpful and dangerous things. We compromise truth. We fail to see the whole picture. We look just down at that piece of grass and we don't know that there's something dangerous. There's a cliff right there. Sheep will actually follow the flock right off a cliff. That's us. And what this section of Romans 5 is saying that is that there's a good shepherd who knows his sheep and will never abandon them. And he will be with them till the, till the very end, throughout the whole journey. He's with them to care for them. Sheep need care too. They have all these things that, that humans have to do to care for them. And if humans don't, they'll actually get sick and die. They can't do it on their own. That's like us. And this hope is grounded in the faithfulness of Christ who is the good shepherd, who is faithful. And in conclusion, one more point. It's a hope glorying in God. This, this section is bookended by statements on boasting, on glorying. 
Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we boast in hope of the glory of God. Then verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom we have now received reconciliation. I hope you have received today lots of reasons to boast. To boast about all that you have, peace with God, standing in grace, trials that are used to grow you in the Lord, an experience of his love, a guarantee of his love in Christ's work, a promise in reality that he will see, just as he did this for you, he will see it through to the end. These are all reasons to boast in God. These are reasons of hope. These are reasons of amazing hope that should propel us onward. It may feel like winter. It may feel it dark at times. But you've got something amazing and the hope we have in Christ to see you through. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this passage and all the promises that are here. And I pray, Lord, give us power to remember them, to rehearse them, to remind one another of them, to live in light of these promises, to be propelled through our circumstances by these promises, to spur one another on to love and good deeds because of these promises as well. We thank you for the hope that we have. Glorify your worthy name as we live in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.